cuts Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Those of you who leave your Bibles and your notebooks and your whatever's here uh, to, from week to week, please remember to move them because we will have probably, I think, a full house on Saturday. So uh, they'll be taking seats and they may disappear. So we just want to make sure that everything is okay. So the um, service is at 11 a.m. And the men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting has been rescheduled for the following Saturday. And that's uh, July 4th at 7.30. And just encourage you to, uh, there are some who don't come, some who should come, some who should come and bring someone. Find your category. We are going through some really important material in the Bible study that helps us understand a lot of what is going on today. As we go through the book, How Should We Then Live by Francis Schaeffer. So that's important. And then Camp Arete is hosting a webinar on July 19th to the 23rd. That's next week. And the topic is Our Destiny in Christ. So it is dealing with some various uh, doctrines related to uh, prophecy and the end times. And to register, go to camparete.com to register. I think anyone can register. You don't have to be a teenager to register and listen in on the conference. And then the 2022 Israel tour is going to be in the first couple of weeks. We have said June 5th to 17th, but due to trying to figure out the best schedule along with the best price is going to be bumping that two or three days in one direction or another. So we haven't, we're, we're not going to, I don't know what that's going to end up being, but we're in the middle of trying to negotiate that right now. And so we'll see what it, how that ends up. But um, that is going to be a, normally we spend 10 days in Israel, we're going to spend 12. So we can do some things that we have not done before, and all in one trip. Some things we have done before, which we haven't done in a number of years, because we're in different parts. So we don't want to spend an extra day in Galilee to see some sites there, and I want to be able to go on a swing into, towards the Negev and go to Arad and Beersheba and uh, some other surprise fun things to do, which we've done maybe once. So I like to keep surprises for people. You know, I learned as a camp leader years ago, never tell people what's going to happen because you never know what might interfere so it doesn't happen. So don't get people's hopes up for something that it rains or whatever happens, uh, and then you have people that are disappointed. So... Uh, irritates people, but I never tell anybody what we're getting ready to do because until we do it, I can't be sure and I don't want to dis disappoint people. So, Anyway, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Before we get started, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study God's Word, which means that in silent prayer we need to acknowledge our sin and in terms of confession, and then we know that we'll be back walking with the Lord. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have forgiveness of sin. We have forgiveness at the cross because Christ canceled the debt of sin. And, Father, we are so thankful for that. For the fact that we have realized that forgiveness personally when we trust in Christ and we are positionally forgiven in him. And, Father, we're thankful that when we sin that We confess our sin, and we are restored to our walk with you and our fellowship. And God, the Holy Spirit, is working not to correct us, but in order to help us grow. So, Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness that is beyond anything we could ask or hope. And, Father, we pray as we study tonight and we study this next section of 2 Peter 3, which is a somewhat difficult passage in some respects that you'll help us to understand what is going on and see how that fits within the mosaic of your word, especially with reference to our motivation, because we should live with the end in mind. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we are going to look at this topic, Scoffers and the Second Coming. I have been um, not procrastinating because I've been trying to do a lot of study on this because I've discovered within certain sections of this there's a lot of material that needs to be worked through, and I have been enjoying that, but because of vacation and because of this thing and that thing, there's just a lot of interruptions and time, and that always is an issue. So uh, we looked the last couple of times at prophecy because in the second verse there's the emphasis, and that should read 2 Peter 3.3 instead of 3.2 up there on the title slide. But the focal point here is going to be uh, redirecting our attention to the second coming of Christ. And what is happening among those who are unbelievers and how they ridicule uh, believers. So just a reminder of our outline, there are three major sections to 2 Peter, each divided by chapter. The first chapter talks about God's will, which is for us to grow to spiritual maturity. Second chapter focuses on a warning about false teachers And the third chapter specifically addresses one aspect of their false teaching related to the future return of Christ. And the conclusion to the epistle is that God mandates us to grow spiritually, that is, in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 18. So in this third chapter, we have two basic divisions— 
The first division is just his second reminder in the first two verses, which we have looked at in the past two or three lessons. And in that uh, verse, he talks about the prophecies of the prophets, that you may be mindful or remember or be brought to mind the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So I looked at some of those prophecies, the fulfilled ones related to the Messiah, and then the ones that have not been uh, yet fulfilled. And last time we spent a good deal of time on Daniel 9, and I will review that later because it is germane to aspects later in this lesson and in terms of a good background for what will come to pass in the in the rest of this particular section going down to uh, at least uh, verse 14. So this it, prophecy is going to be a very big part of what we're about, uh, about to cover. So we looked at those things that were prophesied by the prophets, those fulfilled, those not, and we come to verse 3. And verse 3 reads, Knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And when we look at, I'm going to go ahead and read the next couple of verses so we have the whole context. Uh, And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as it was from the beginning of creation. Uh, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with waters. So we will not get through all of that tonight, but we will deal with what is going on in this uh, this particular verse. It starts off with the phrase, knowing this first. The verb is gnosko in the Greek, which is where we get the noun gnosis. You can hear the similarities in the, in the word. And this is a participle. Participles have a variety of functions. And in this particular uh, verse, coming out of the second verse, it has... At first glance, and there are some commentators are split on this, uh, it may have a causal sense because you know this, that would make sense. But when it says know this first, that doesn't really sound like it is an explanation of a reason. It wouldn't be saying, well, because you know this first. I don't think that's quite it. It has an imperatival sense that this is a foundational thing that they should be aware of. Now, if you have your Bible or if you just want to annotate to 120, 120 begins this same way, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, and it's the exact same language. And as that is stated... Uh, Peter is emphasizing the priority of this knowledge. The word for first is the word protos, 
And that has the idea of something first, something that is prominent, something that comes first in a series of things. And so this emphasizes a priority in terms of understanding what these scoffers are going to say and what these scoffers are, are, are going to do. And so we read, um, know this first, and it's appropriately punctuated in English with a colon because the next, uh, the rest of the verse emphasizes what it is that they are to be aware of. And this is a prediction of what will take place in the church age. It is not a sign of the second coming, but it does it will precede the second coming, if that makes sense to you. It doesn't mean, oh, we have scoffers, so the second coming must be near. We know that there are other things that will precede the second coming, but there have been scoffers articulating this in one way or another down through the church age. But what they are going to articulate is something that specifically and intentionally applies to what's been going on in our culture for the last uh, 200 plus years. So we read, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Now, I don't have the word up there, but the word for last is the Greek word eschaton. And eschaton is where we get the English word eschatology, which means the study of the last things. And that is the branch of theology that looks at unfulfilled prophecy related to the rapture, related to the second coming, related to the tribulation. And it also relates to other things. It relates to what happens to us when we die, what happens to our soul. Lots of different areas are covered within the framework of eschatology. But we have a phrase then that, that reads in the English translation that scoffers will come. Now, this is interesting only because some of you don't get interested in these things, but I get interested in them, so therefore you'll be told about them, is that it seems like for the third or fourth time in the last couple of weeks, we have this kind of a Hebraism. Peter probably did not have Greek as his first language. Uh, He spoke Hebrew, and so like John, there are a lot of, he writes Greek, but using sort of Hebrew structures and Hebrew idioms. And if you know anybody who, uh, even even though they may not have much of an accent even in English, but if they grew up with another language, that at times you can sense that they are uh, saying something in English that reflects the way it was said in another language. And that's what you see here. And I have talked about this before, expanding your vocabulary, that this is a form of structure in Hebrew where you would take a verb and you take that same verb and instead of having it in the basic verb form, you add to it an infinitive form. And so you're repeating it. And the word that refers to repetition is a tautology. That's spelled T-A-U-T-O-L-O-G-Y. 
And so this is called a tautological infinitive, and it is designed to emphasize the certainty of something that is going to happen. And so you have it in places such as, I used an example, I think it was on Sunday, but you have other examples. Uh, for example, example in, in Genesis 2, when God says, you will surely die. And you have heard people translate that, dying, you will die. That is a freshman attempt to interpret or translate Hebrew. But it's even that way in the, in the King James. And I, I understood the principle, but I didn't know the term tautological infinitive until just a few weeks ago in this Hebrew class I'm, I'm taking. But that's what this is, because it doesn't read anything like that in the in the Greek, you have, on the one hand, we have two words. You can hear their similarity. The one on the left is empagmane, and the one on the right is empaites. So the E-M-P-A-I-G, which hardens to a K in the, in the noun, is the root meaning of the word. So it's just a repetition of the same basic root, uh, twice, so that's where it comes across, and the verb means to mock, to scoff, to deride or despise or to ridicule, and the noun means a someone who is doing that, a mocker, a scoffer, a derider, uh, a ridiculer, someone who is scornfully saying something, uh, being very derisive about what people believe, laughing at them, making fun of them, ridiculing them, or reviling them. And so literally it reads in the Greek, scoffing, they will scoff, which is clearly a a Hebrew idiom. And it basically means they will certainly scoff. This is definitely going to happen. You can count on it. There's going to blatantly scoff as the NET uh, translates this. And so there is a definite statement, an emphasized statement, that they're going to be in the last days, these scoffers. Now, the question is, when are the last days? I could have a pop quiz and ask you, when are the last days? And if you read through the New Testament, you will discover that from the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church, we are in the last days of the church. And that phrase is used to describe the church. So don't get caught up in all of the emotion and everything else when people see certain things going on. And, of course, there's been a lot of chatter about the vaccine and the weird stuff that goes, I've never seen governments mandate, force, intimidate, scare, frighten, reward people for getting a vaccine like what is going on today. That alone makes me incredibly suspicious because fundamentally I believe that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so when the government starts doing things like this, I start getting very suspicious. And... um, and so we have a, a, a situation that where people are comparing this to the mark of the beast because you've seen and heard that there are some countries that are being so forceful in mandating the vaccines that they're basically saying you can't work. 
And you can't go into any place where there are a lot of people, so you can't shop, you can't buy food, and you can't uh, go to sports events or go to theater or anything like that. And this sounds a lot like what is going to happen under the Antichrist. So those who are unlearned and have not analyzed or been taught the Scripture think that, oh my, could this be the mark of the beast? Not at all. Uh, it is absurd to think that because the mark of the beast does not become used until the midpoint of the tribulation. This is just a trial run of something that looks like what will happen, but what will happen will be not so innocuous because the mark of the beast is not something that you can just accidentally take or you can be forced to take because the mark of the beast is going to involve some sort of oath of swearing allegiance to the Antichrist. It will be very clear that because it comes at that midpoint of the tribulation that those who take the mark of the beast are aligning themselves with the beast, the Antichrist, against Jesus Christ. And so this is why when you read in the latter part of Revelation that no one who takes the mark of the beast is going to be saved, it's because it's more than just signing up for a credit card or going to the tattoo parlor and getting a tattoo. It is a volitional decision to accept Satan's primary disciple and leader, the Antichrist, over against Jesus Christ. So the last days cover the whole church age period up until it ends. But there's another way in which the term last days is used. And that is referring to the last days of Israel. So you always, when you see that phrase, the last days of the latter days, are we talking about the church or are we talking about Israel? Because there are things that relate to the last days of the church, which is the entirety of the church age, and those things that relate to the last days of Israel. And the last days of Israel do not occur until after the rapture in that period that we studied last time called Daniel's 70th week, that last seven-year period in the 490 years that God has set apart for Israel. And so that refers to in the the last days, the end times related to to Israel. So we always have to make that, that distinction. And Peter is emphasizing the fact that these, these scoffers will certainly come in the last days. And it's interesting that he uses the word erkamai, which simply refers to someone who's going to come or appear on the scene, but it's a future tense verb, a future indicative. So that tells us that it wasn't something that they were seeing at that time, but Peter is warning them that this is going to happen uh, in the future, that these scoffers will come. And because it's present, or because it's future tense, it's a future, uh, the future tense can have a linear sense like the present tense. And so it's not just talking in a punctiliar manner as it's just like a photo, but it's talking about something that's going to be continuous. And so throughout the church age, there have been those who ridiculed Christianity and derided Christianity and made fun of Christians 
and that is going to continue throughout the uh, the church age. And then uh, he has the phrase walking according to their own lusts. And the word for walking is the word peruomai. And now on, uh, it's interesting how these things sort of come together, but in Ephesians 4.1, of course, we have been talking about walking. And that is the verb peripateo. And peripateo isn't the same word as peruomai, but sometimes it is translated this way. And peruomai in classical Greek and in the way it was used to translate the Septuagint had an emphasis on walking. It was just a synonym for peripateo. But in the New Testament, there are only two examples where it would be a synonym for peripateo. It is often used of someone going on a journey or going heading to some destiny. So it speaks about Jesus peruomai going to heaven. It talks about others who may be going to the lake of fire. So it indicates some sort of journey with a specific destiny. And so that's what this is talking about here. It's, it's a, in that sense, when it's talking about unbelievers, it's talking about their journey and their destiny uh, in terms of the negative consequences of their unbelief are the characteristics of their unbelief. And here it's talking about the characteristics of their unbelief, and it reads according to, and that is in the Greek always uh, uh, indicating according to a particular standard. And the standard here is their lusts. And we've talked about lusts as the primary mover of the sin nature. And I didn't put the sin nature diagram in here, but you remember what that looks like. And the orientation of the sin nature is me or you, every one of us. It's all about me. It's arrogance. It's the arrogant skills of, of uh, you know, self-absorption, self-indulgence, self, um, self-deception, self-justification, and self-deification. Those are the various arrogant skills. And when it's all about me, it's all about satisfying my own passions. And on Sunday, as a matter of fact, we talked about uh, a different word than the word here is epithemia. On Sunday, we talked about patience, which is macro. Thumia. And thumos is the Greek word for anger or passions. And so it, when it's talking about macro means long. And so it has the idea of long on patience, somebody who holds their temper, somebody who is restrained, somebody who doesn't let their passions control uh, to control them. But epithemia is someone who lets their passions control them. And it is those various lusts. And, of course, most people, when they think of lust, they think of the more obvious lusts of sex lust or money lust, materialism lust, things of that nature. But there's all kinds of other lusts. One of the more subtle is just approbation. We all like people to affirm us and tell us we did a good job and recognize us for what we did. And that is... Uh, approbation lust. And then we have power lust. 
and powerless is particularly displayed by those who are extremely ambitious. Now, ambition does not have to be the manifestation of power lust, because if you're a believer, there is nothing wrong with desiring to do well, desiring to enjoy the benefits of doing well, and being rewarded for doing well. But you can cross over to where that becomes something that is sinful, and it's all about it's all about me, and it's all about getting power so that I can control people, manipulate people, and that's just that's just power lust. And you have lust for pleasure. You have lust for entertainment. I mean, anything in life can turn over to a lust. You can have a lust for violence. You can have a lust uh, for chemical, various chemical dependencies, for drugs, for alcohol, for just about anything. And it's these lust patterns that motivate us, that drive us at, from the sin nature when we're not walking according to the Holy Spirit. And so when, when everybody's born, they're still under the control of their sin nature, and so nobody prior to salvation can get away from being controlled by their sin nature and being driven by their various lust patterns. And this is one reason it's the job of parents to teach children self-discipline through corporal punishment if necessary, through various rewards and motivations and restrictions that come as negative consequences. Sometimes you have to uh, uh, apply a, a paddle and spanking, which should never, of course, be abusive, but it is uh, sanctified by Proverbs that if one spares the rod, then they spoil the child. And so there has to be a there has to be good sense and wisdom applied. But God does the same thing. He disciplines us uh, when we are disobedient. That's Hebrews chapter twelve, verses five and six. So the lust patterns have to be brought under control, and even an unbeliever can bring them under a modicum of control. But they have to be taught that by their parents and by those who are in in their life. Otherwise, if they are not taught restraint and not taught good manners, not taught self-discipline, then they're just going to create a lot of problems and they won't make anyone happy, including themselves. So they are walking according to their own lusts. They are uh, sinners and they are uh, scoffing and ridiculing uh, Christians. And what is it that they say? And this brings us into Second Peter uh, 3, 4. And they say, where is the promise of his coming? Oh, you say Jesus is coming back. Well, when is it? Has anybody heard? It's been 2,000 years. Does anybody know anything about it? And you Christians keep thinking about it all the time. And there, Jesus isn't coming back. Everything just continues the way it always has. And the way it's expressed in Peter is, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, by use of the word creation doesn't necessarily mean that they believe in a literal creation, but it does mean that they see that there was a starting point, and ever since that starting point, the processes that govern 
uh, everything on the earth are processes that are uh, gradual and they're not interrupted and they continue. And so there's no indication that God intervenes in the affairs of mankind. Now, when it comes to science, this is something that is called uniformitarianism. And uh, I thought, I looked it up on Wikipedia just to see what they said, and I had just read, uh, t- I have a, a two-volume work dealing with, the, dealing with uh, flood geology, and I had just looked up in there how they were defining uniformitarianism, and it was almost verbatim. It's the doctrine of uniformity, or uh, sometimes called the uniformitarian principle, that is the assumption that the same natural laws and processes that operate in our present-day scientific observation have always operated in the universe in the past and apply everywhere in the universe. So everything decays and deteriorates at the same rate. So you can look at various atoms and you can see how long it takes for them to deteriorate, measure their half-life and all of these various other things. And it's interesting because everything has some sort of process that you can measure. But uh, John Morris, the son of Henry Morris, has a wonderful book on on the age of the earth, which he uses about what he calls uh, about 30, or no, I think he has more than that. It's about 50 different, quote, clocks, unquote. A clock is a measuring device. And so you can look at the mouth of a river, the delta of a river, and you can measure how much silt is laid down in the delta every year. And so if it's laying down a half an inch of silt a year and you measure so much silt, then you can extrapolate back as to how long it's taken to lay that down. The problem is there are catastrophes or cataclysms that have happened that break that up, it's not always the same. You have a major hurricane that comes in, and that's going to change the uh, time of of the process. And you have other things that they measure, uh, for example, how much uh, dust is on the face of the moon and how much is laid down. They expected that when the astronauts landed on the moon, that is the millions of years the moon has been there, that they were possibly going to sink up to their knees in uh, dust on the face of the moon. And there was hardly any. Their clock was wrong. And there's all kinds of other measuring devices. You can measure uh, radiation and and, uh, you can measure different presence of different isotopes and carbon-14 and all kinds of other things. And there's a lot of fascinating material on that in the... Uh, creationist literature, and one thing that, uh, you know, it's interesting, I hear people who say, well, I just, there, there just seems to be so much evidence that the earth is old. But all that evidence that appears to say that the earth is very, very, very old is, is was presuppositionally the, the, what, excuse me, it was the foundational presupposition uh, the way the evidence was evaluated to begin with. In other words, you front-loaded your, uh, your formula and your approach in a way that would predetermine that it would end up with lengthy periods of time. And what is interesting is there have been two different 
uh, studies, books that have been published. The second one is available electronically that have been published by ICR that were lengthy studies that they did, scientific studies uh, that have been published in peer-reviewed journals that did have some impact in some areas that indicated that that the things that the clocks that were used in order to come up with lengthy time periods uh, were fallacious. And so you have to look at that. There's, there's not, not one single thing that, that is used to substantiate an old earth that is valid. And if you want to study that, there's just a host of books that are very technical books that are put out by Answers in Genesis and Institute for Creation Research and a number of other creationist societies that are relying purely on science and, and things that you can evaluate and measure in the laboratory, and they don't bring in anything related to the Bible. They're just looking at does the evidence used for long ages of the earth necessarily predict, necessarily uh, hold up. And it doesn't. And there's lots of variations. And one of the great studies, and one that uh, you should look at if you've never looked at it, is a uh, DVD that was put out. I think we have it back in the uh, back in the library. We have a lot of these DVDs in the library, and that's available so that people can check them out and watch them, show them to their kids, and talk about them. And that. Um, this was done back in the late 80s or early 90s by uh, Dr. Uh, Steve Austin when he did a tremendous study at Mount St. Helens. And in Mount St. Helens, which uh, blew up in May of 1980, that it threw incredible amounts of ash into the air, and then you had all of this lava that that blew out one side of the mountain, and it pushed all the trees and all the forests and all the mud and water and everything and pushed it out. And eventually it's pushing so much stuff in front of it that that becomes its own dam. And it had a lot of liquid behind it, and it formed a crust over the top. And over time, though, there's all of this movement behind it and the weight of it that eventually it broke the dam. It took about three years. And when it's done, it's like if you filled up your bathtub with water and you reach down and you grab the stopper and you pull the stopper off, you see the swirling as everything's going down the drain and you hear that suction. Well, that's about what happened when this dam broke. And in a matter of just a, a, a few days, all of this that was still liquid just gets sucked out, and what was left was a canyon system that was approximately one-fortieth of the size of the Grand Canyon. And what that tells us is that the Grand Canyon was not formed in slow processes of erosion over a period of millions of years, but that it was formed in a very short period of time as a result of some significant cataclysm. And so this has caused the standard uniformitarian uh, doctrine of geology has uh, changed over the last 
50 years because of some of these studies because they recognize that there are periods of catastrophism. And you can't, and if there are any periods of catastrophism, then you really can't date anything accurately. And they, they have punctual, what they call punctuated catastrophism. And that, that they'll have small, make room for small catastrophes, but they ignore the really big catastrophe of the Noahic flood. And I'm going to show you a couple of videos here in just a minute, but I want to go through the text of this first and the significance of this. So we'll come back to look and talk. We have to talk more about this in the coming verses. But this is this claim of the scoffers is Jesus isn't coming back. So the big question here as we study this passage from now till we get down to verse 14 or through 13 is the answer to this question. Where is the promise of his coming? Okay? That's going to be very important, especially when we get down to verse 10 through 13, and we're talking about the day of the Lord that is mentioned there uh, that will come as a thief in the night. So we're going to have to drill down on some uh, prophetic passages because this gets technical, and it's very important. So the question is, what is the promise of his coming? The word that is used for coming here is the Greek word parousia. Now, there are some that have overstated the case, and they will argue that parousia refers, is a technical term, and that it refers to the rapture. There may be some others who say, no, 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 it always refers to the second coming. It is not a technical term. It is used to refer to both the second coming and the rapture. So we see in Matthew 24, and we're going to go there in just a minute to look at what we learned from Matthew 24, that is uh, the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 3, the disciples ask basically two questions. Tell us when will these things be? Jesus had just said that there's going to be this disaster that comes on Jerusalem and the temple's buildings are going to be torn down and not one stone will be left on another. And they're saying, when is that going to happen? They just can't imagine it because the temple is so glorious. And the second question really has two parts. What's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Sign of your coming is the end of the age. So that's why You'll hear some people say, well, it's three questions. Some people say it's two questions. Well, it's really, that second question is really redundant. It is somewhat tautological. I thought you'd like to hear that word again. It's somewhat tautological because the, the end of the age occurs when Jesus returns. Matthew 24, 27 says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew twenty four thirty seven. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And the, and the days of Noah were, what happened? Suddenly the fountains of the deep opened and the windows of heaven opened. The fountains of the deep burst forth, the windows of heaven opened, And it was sudden, and it surprised everybody because they didn't believe anything that Noah said. 
And they were caught completely unprepared. It was sudden. Even though they had been warned and they had been told and they had heard it from Noah for many decades, they didn't believe him. So when it happened, they were surprised. Matthew twenty four thirty nine and uh, did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So all the way through Matthew twenty four, the use of the term coming relates to the answer uh, to the question, the Jewish oriented question, what will be the sign of your coming? But when you get out of the Gospels and into passages that relate to the church in the epistles, the word parousia relates to the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, but each one in his own order, talking about the orders of groups that are resurrected. Christ is the first fruit, the first to be resurrected. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. That would be the church age believers. And the coming there is parousia, so there it refers to the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, for what is our hope, our joy, our, pres- our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Okay, so that's talking about the rapture because it's talking about believers being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, church-age believers. And 1 Thessalonians 4.15, which really nails it, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the parousia of the Lord, that's the rapture, will be by no means precede those who are asleep. The dead in Christ, he goes on to say, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in in the cloud. So that's clearly the rapture. So parousia is not a technical term for the rapture or the second coming. It's just a general word that's used for the arrival of someone. And in this case, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's turn uh, to Matthew chapter 24. And we've studied this in detail. And all I want to do is just remind us of what is in Matthew 24. And so this is part of what I'm preparing you for in getting into verses 9 or, or 10 through 13 on the day of the Lord. So we, I want to make sure that everybody gets back into their head the framework of the end times, of the events of the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. So I'm building let you know ahead of time, I'm building this case, remind all of us, as Peter tells us in Second Peter 3, 1 and 2, we need to be reminded, be mindful or reminded of these things. So let's just look at, at what's going on here. Now to, to capture this, one of the things we ought to remember just in terms of something overall is that the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' last words to Israel. This is on probably Monday afternoon. He enters Jerusalem on Sunday. He will be crucified on Friday. We went through all of this detailed chronology. There's no way you can get around it. 
He's going to be crucified on Friday. He will be resurrected on Sunday, which is first fruits. So he enters Jerusalem on Sunday, which is the 10th of the month of Nisan. And what happens, he's fulfilling the prophecies and the typology of Passover. And at Passover on the 10th of Nisan, the lamb is going to be selected, a lamb that is without spot or blemish and must be evaluated for four days to make sure it is without spot or blemish. And so the first two or three days after after Jesus enters Jerusalem, he is uh, interrogated by the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and all of the religious leaders, and demonstrating that he is exactly who he claims to be, the Messiah, the promised, prophesied Messiah of Israel. And so when he gets to the end of that grilling period, uh, which is probably, I, I think Monday was what I decided on at the time, probably Monday afternoon, uh, he is going to announce a judgment on uh, on Jerusalem. And he laments over Jerusalem, and he says in verse 37 of chapter 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I think it's a great passage because it emphasizes volition. God wants to gather them again and again all through the Old Testament period, but they're not willing. What do they do? Well, earlier you talked about the fact that they killed the prophets and all the messengers that were sent. And so he says, I I wanted to gather you, but you were not willing. He doesn't say because God didn't choose you in eternity past and make you elect and predestinated. He doesn't say that. I think that's an important thing to observe. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. And that refers to Israel, and it also has a second allusion to the temple. The temple is the house of God. And he says to them, for I say to you, you shall see me, more, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that won't happen again until the remnant in Basra at the end of the tribulation finally turns to call upon Jesus to rescue them and deliver them. And he comes to Basra, which is around uh, Petra in Jordan. And Isaiah tells, and Jeremiah tell us that he comes with his robes dripping in blood because of he's already slaughtered part of the Antichrist armies. And he comes to rescue them and take them to Jerusalem. So we've studied all of that in detail. So when Jesus goes out, first verse of chapter 24, he goes out and departs from the temple. His disciples come up to him, and they are showing him the buildings of the temple, and they are so impressed with... I mean, this was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They're just impressed with Herod's architecture and how incredible these buildings were. And... um, They're talking about that, and Jesus says to them, Do you not see all those things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's talking about the buildings. He's not talking about the western wall, which is the retaining wall around uh, uh, the Temple Mount. He's talking about the buildings, and they were all torn down. The Romans... 
Uh, Everything caught fire. The gold was going down between the major stones. And so they were pulling them all apart to get to all of the gold. And so everything's just completely torn apart and everything. And now the disciples ask him that question about, tell us, A, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus answered and said to them, uh, take heed that no one deceives you. Now, the first part that goes from verse 4 down through verse 14 is talking about the first half of the tribulation. I'm going to skip this slide. Uh, it's the, the first half is talking about the first half of the tribulation. So they're asking this same question, when, when's it going to happen and what's going to be the sign of these things? It's not talking about the rapture. It's talking about the end of the age. That's important. What age are they in at that point? They're not in the church age yet. Crucifixion won't happen until Friday. They are in the age of Israel, and Israel had 490 years. We'll see that. I'll review that again in just a minute. So this is the same thing we see in Matthew 13.3, the same basic questions. When will they be? What are the signs of his coming? And a reminder Lou Barbieri, who was a prophet Dallas in the late 80s and went back to Moody, writes in his commentary in the Bible Knowledge Commentary that the church is not present in any sense in chapters 24 and 25. And this is really important because some of you are familiar with the uh, Grace Evangelical Society and uh, the work of Zane Hodges and Bob Wilkin and a lot of people associated with that group. And one of the errors they have is they make half of this about the church. They get into the midpoint of, of the chapter and they see the rapture there. And so that makes all the judgment passages at the end about the church and not about Israel. It's very, very important. And so they're, they're very wrong there. So no parts of these two chapters refer to the church age. Jesus will talk about what's going to happen to the church age in the future when he gets with the disciples in, in the upper room after they have uh, the Seder meal and when they're walking to Gethsemane, and that's in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel of John, and um, that's called the upper room discourse, and that gives church age doctrine, but this is not church age doctrine. So the big issue is who's taken and who's left behind in 2440 to 42. And since it's all talking about the second coming, those who are taken are taken in judgment. And those who are left behind are the, are the tribulation saints who survived the tribulation. There's no rapture there. And the third issue is then going to be understanding those parables at the end, which are all almost all about judgment on the surviving Jews during the tribulation, except for the last one, which deals with uh, the nations, the Gentiles, and how they treated Israel uh, during the tribulation period. So the first three and a half years of the tribulation is what's covered in verses uh, 4 through 8 here. And the wars and rumors of wars, remember, they're signs of the time. And you have all known... Lots of different prophecy teachers who have said, see, we're we're seeing this now. We've been seeing wars and rumors of war ever since Jesus was here. Well, that's not much of a sign. 
If every few years, I remember when I was in studying military science in college that, that since World War II up to the early 70s, I think there had been something like three to four wars a month somewhere in the world. So there's always been wars and rumors of war. So that if there's always there, it's not much of a sign. The wars that this is talking about are cataclysmic world wars that come with the four horsemen of the apocalypse as the first four seals in Revelation chapter 6. And if you remember when we studied that, I went through and I showed all the parallels between what's described here in these verses uh, down to uh, verse verse 12 and showed how they parallel the sealed judgments in Matthew I mean Revelation chapter uh, chapter 6 and it's called the beginning of sorrows the beginning literally the beginning of labor pains and so just to remind you last week we looked at Daniel 9:24 to 27 which says that there will be a decree to restore Israel, to rebuild Jerusalem, to build the walls, and to build plaza and moat, which indicates the plazas, the marketplace. They'll be completely restored economically and militarily because they're going to have the wall up and defenses. And that decree was on March 5th, 444 BC, when Artaxerxes gave that decree, Nehemiah 2 1 through 3. So in the Daniel prophecy in Daniel 9 says there'll be seven weeks, then 62 weeks. And so 62 and 7 is 69 weeks, and you can multiply it out. 69 times 7 is 173,880 days. And so you can work with that. That's all for Israel. So you've got those 70 times 7, 490 years. You're one week short, and you end up with 173,880 days or 483 years. And these years are years of 360 days. They're, they're lunar, year, lunar months. And so we can calculate the, that length because they're referred to with different terms, half a week in Daniel 9.27, time, one, times is a dual term, so that's two, time, one, two, three, and a half a time is three and a half, and that term is used in Daniel 7.25, 12.7, and 12.14. There's 1,260 days in uh, Revelation 12.6 and 11.3, so if you divide 1,260 by three and a half, you get... 30-day months. So that's 42 months, and those 42 months then give us 1,260 days. And then we can check our math by multiplying 69 by 7 by 360, and you get that 173,880 days, and that's what you have from March 5th, 444 B.C. uh, to March 30th. A.D. 33, which is when Jesus entered Jerusalem. After he enters, that's when he's going to be cut off. So he's, it's not to the crucifixion, it's to, it's saying after that time, then he's cut off. And you can verify it, check your math. If you take 444 and add 33, you get 477 and you minus 1, 
because there's no year zero, you get 476 years. 476 years times 365.2421989 days equals 173,855 days. And then from March 5th to March 30th, there's 25 days, and that gives you your 173,880 days. So God's a pretty good mathematician and gave us a really good sign there as to when the crucifixion would take place. So we have to ask the question, what happened to the other seven years? And that's the tribulation, which comes after the church age. So the prophecy says, after the 69th week, the Messiah, the prince, will be cut off. The prince who is to come will destroy the temple. And then there's just this gap. And we don't know when the gap ends, but the gap will end when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That's the key. The rapture doesn't start the tribulation. It ends the church age. And then there's going to be a, who knows how long, transition period, just like Christ was the end of the law when he was crucified, but it's 50 days later at Pentecost that you have the start of the church age. So there's a transition period that's not law and it's not Uh, not the church age. So that's what we have. The Messiah returns at the end, but all of that is related to Israel, not the church. The church is raptured. So what we have here is the tribulation. That's what we're talking about. And the coming prince is the Antichrist. Messiah returns at the end, and he in the middle is you have the abomination of desolation, and that's what Matthew says in verse uh, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing on the holy place. So that's the midpoint of the tribulation. And he says, When you see that, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let who's on the housetop not go down. In other words, everything's going to go sideways, and you need to get out of Judea. Not out of Houston, not out of New York, not out of London, but out of Judea, out of Jerusalem because then there will be great tribulation. And that's not a technical term for the second half. That's just saying that it's going to get, it's been, it's been adversity the first half, and now it's going to intensify and multiply in the second half, like has never been seen from the beginning of the world until this neck, until this time. And unless the days were shortened, no flesh would be saved but for the elect's sake, these days will be shortened. But watch out because some are going to say, look, here's the Christ, look, there's the Christ, but don't be deceived. Uh, when he comes, it will be like the lightning coming from the east, flashing to the west, verse 27. And then verse 29 says, immediately after the tribulation of the, those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What is this called? Joel 2. It is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not a term that covers all of the tribulation and all of the millennium, which is what Chafer and Walverd and Ryrie all said. The day of the Lord is always a time of judgment 
And we'll look at that in more detail. It's always a time of judgment. It's never a time of peace or blessing. So this is the day of the Lord is talking about this event. And then the remainder here is talking about being prepared for it and that no one knows the day or the hour, but but it's going to be compared to the days of Noah. And people stumble on verse 38 where it says, For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And I've heard so many prophecy scholars, smart men say, see, that just looks so normal. And they're caught by surprise, so it ought to be the rapture. But it says, like in the days of Noah, they're marrying and giving in marriage. What kind of marriages were there at the time of Noah? The sons of God, the demons, are taking human wives. It was demonic and it was perverse. It wasn't normal. That's the comparison. And so it's still talking about the coming of the Son of Man. It's always the second coming. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And um, the second three and a half years then is increased persecution after the Antichrist breaks the covenant. And in Matthew 24, 9, then then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And they're warned to flee, to uh, avoid the increased persecution in the second half, and that all follows the abomination of desolation. So this is what we're going to look at in the coming weeks. The day of the Lord is what happens at the end of that tribulation period. And that is what we'll be, we'll be looking at. So I was going to look at some videos, but I'll start with those next time because I want to go back to talking about this, this uniformitarian thing and what really happened at the flood geologically. That's very, very important to understand that. So we'll do that, uh, get into that next, uh, next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things tonight and realize that we live in the devil's world. There's always attacks against Scripture, always attacks against the gospel, always attacks and ridicule and maligning and blaspheming against Jesus. But we are to stand firm and we are to recognize that this is normative in the church age and that we need to recognize that there will come a time, though, when there will be a change that you have intervened in human history cataclysmically several times in major ways worldwide in the flood of Noah. Uh, you destroyed the nation Israel and ten, I mean the nation of Egypt in ten plagues in the Old Testament. You brought judgment in a horrific way on the northern kingdom and, and then the southern kingdom. And so all things do not continue at the same rate. And so, Father, we are thankful that we have the guidance of Scripture to know what is happening, what has happened in the past, and what will come in the future. And we pray that you will help us to understand these passages correctly. In Christ's name, amen.